on today's episode. I think when you when you build a team, I think two things are important. You kind of have to have a sense of the fabric of the people you're around. So you need to have a sense that this player responds better when she's called out in a group. This player does much better in a 1v1 meeting. That's truly knowing the individual and knowing how best to reach them. I think that's part of it. I would also say that, you know, your your ability as a coach to allow people to be who they are is important. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today, I am delighted to have with me Jill Ellis. Jill was named head coach of the US women's national soccer team in 2014. Like me, Jill was born in England and supports Manchester United. But there the similarities end. She has won not one, but two Women's World Cups in 2015 and 2019, making her the first coach to win the Women's World Cup twice. Before becoming the national team coach, she had a highly successful 12-year run as the head coach at UCLA. She was a player herself, playing up front for the College of William & Mary. Jill, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So... Let's, let's get going. Let, let's go back. You didn't grow up when you were in England playing on a soccer team. Now, part of the reason, well, the reason you didn't play on a soccer team because outrageously there wasn't any organized soccer for girls. So how did you develop a love for soccer? And, and when did you realize actually you wanted to be a soccer coach? Yeah, no, it, absolutely right. I mean, it was... I mean, you can't, you know, obviously yourself growing up in England, you can't help but be just entrenched in the sport. It's everywhere, you know, it it really is a, a national passion, right? And so, you know, just growing up, I remember as a young kid, my mum was Scottish, my dad was English, you know, I remember watching the England-Scotland derbies and so always kind of following the game, interested in the game. And while I was a big sports athlete, you know, playing different sports, netball, field hockey, I always ended up in the schoolyard playing with the boys, playing football, soccer. So it was always something I, I loved. I loved the sport. My father was doing some coaching as well. Uh, he worked for the FA on, and also was in the, the military. So it was in my family. It was in my blood. I was exposed to it. But it wasn't truly until I came to the US that I was almost 15 that I actually got the opportunity to go out and try out for a girls team. Yeah. And I remember when you know, I made this team, I put my jersey on. It was, you know, it just, it felt amazing. It was um, truly the ability to kind of follow a dream. It was ironic that I had to leave a country that was so entrenched in it yeah. to, to do that. But the reality was I, I got to to come over and play. Coaching was never on the radar. It was something that soccer was almost a vehicle for my education. Uh-huh. I went into the business world for a couple of years after doing some graduate work. And um, then I got offered this job for minimal pay. And I just, whatever reason, I think I just followed my heart. I say passion over paycheck, but I just jumped at the chance to go into the coaching ranks and um, I loved it. I love everything about it. And, and as soon as you started being a coach, did you know straight away that actually this is for me? I did. Once I was actually in coaching, it was just so gratifying. You know, I'm a, connecting with people. I, you know, I, I've sort of said that I think, you know, in coaching, coaching you're a caretaker of dreams, right? You're helping to facilitate people achieving something. I think parents also are coaches, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's working with people to try and sometimes you have to push them, sometimes you have to encourage them. It's it's finding out ways to help people grow and, and achieve their best. So when I got into it, loved it, wanted to wanted to kind of stay in it. But again, there were still very few female coaches. 
and it was still not really a viable pathway in terms of a career. But uh, again, it was kind of a leap of faith. So one of the many things I find really interesting about successful coaches is you, you have to assess people through a number of different lenses. You're looking obviously at their raw physical talent, but you're also looking at the mental side. So maybe we can just talk a bit about yeah. talent identification. Is this something you can twin science and art, or do you actually think at a very high level, everyone's really good anyway, so it becomes much more assessing the person, the character? How, how do you think about putting data plus intuition together? I actually will start by answering that and saying, people say, you know, what was what were the qualities you selected for your, you know, your World Cup roster, 23 players. And I always said at the base, players have to have ability. But having said that, I've also had a lot of players that are incredibly talented that didn't have the the mental fortitude. You know, either the pressure was too much, the the stress, the the ability to perform under pressure, the ability to day in. I mean, our environment with the women's national team, it's so competitive to day in and day out grind and have to prove yourself over and over and over again. So I think it is a combination. You certainly, you don't make a U.S. national team, you don't make a high-level elite team unless you have the ability. And I always say to, to win a world championship, a team has to have kind of the trifecta. They have to have the athletic ca- capacity, they have to have the mental capacity and strength, and they also have to have the technical and the, and the soccer component. And I think for, for a long, long time, the U.S., we had kind of a monopoly on all three. But I also think that's characteristic of individuals coming into that environment. They almost have to have all three. Certainly you can work on, when a player comes into the environment, you can work on the tactical side of it because it might be specific to what their role is. But if they can't have a base level of technical proficiency and they don't have the, the the mental capacity to be able to function in that environment, I think it's very hard. Talent identification, I have, you know, we have a massive scouting network when I was first hired, I actually hired a guy to be our, our head of talent identification because that's your lifeblood, right? And I always, what he said is, what are you looking for? I said, give me one more as good as our best. And that was kind of the, the guideline. And, and then you're looking at profiles of players and very specific. So he went out, you know, you identify players, but ultimately you have to bring them in and vet them in your environment. That's where you really truly see if they sink or swim. And I think as a coach, what you have to manage is, the ability to say, you know, if a player has one bad game, I mean, Rose Lavelle, who's one of our fantastic, you know, uh, young players, her first game, flashes of brilliance, but was okay, you know, mm-hmm. not fantastic. But that's where you have to use your gut instinct to say, okay, she has these these elements, it needs more time, more investment. And I think that's sometimes, you know, a coach, you can't write a player off too early, but then on the other side, you can't hang in there and wait and wait and wait if it's not going to happen. So things like grit. Mm-hmm. Is teachable or not teachable? I, I do not think it's teachable. I, I think it's something that's you can you can expose players to hard situations and see how they respond. And I think over time, young players harden themselves. You know, for example, a simple fitness test. When a player goes out and runs the first time a fitness test, they're going to struggle because they don't know the dynamics of it. Over time, can they improve at that? Certainly. But that competitive instinct. I, I truly don't think it's something that you can teach. You know, I've had players that are phenomenally talented, but you just want to be like, God, I just want to light a fire under them, you know, yeah, and that's yeah. that element that you just can't, can't teach, can't coach. And how, how do you, when you have a squad of clearly different personalities, some very loud, gregarious, yes. extrovert, and, and how, how do you make sure you're giving everyone 
enough attention, equal attention, or the right sort of attention? Because it may be the person who's the quietest that has the biggest needs or, or, or maybe gets them the most nervous, or actually it could be the extrovert that actually secretly gets the, the most nervous. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. You know, and I think the, the beauty of what I had in my most recent team was we had a, an extreme in that. You know, I have a, a, a goalkeeper, a listener, who plays a high-pressure, high-profile position who is a natural introvert. And, you know, then you have a player like Megan Rapino who thrives and gains energy from being in the spotlight. And I think when you, when you build a team, I think two things are important. You kind of have to have a sense of the fabric of the people you're around. So you need to have a sense that this player responds better when she's called out in a group. This player does much better in a 1v1 meeting. That's truly knowing the individual and knowing how best to reach them. I think that's part of it. I would also say that, you know, your, your ability as a coach to allow people to be who they are is important. So, you know, I have some players that, again, are outspoken and other players that keep, keep to themselves. You've got to create an environment where people feel comfortable being themselves. And, you know, I always said I would never step into a situation or mute my player from speaking out, or whatever it, the issue, you know, social issues, politics, unless something spilled over and negatively affected either our performance or another player. But for that matter, you have to see players aren't just, they don't just matter to you between the white lines. They're, they're not just a commodity, they're human beings. And so allowing them to have a voice or to have, you know, the capacity to be who they are, I think is critical. And then I think the final part to that is you have to value, you know, I had a roster of 23 players, all very different and diverse in their, in their personalities. You have to show value in all. Yeah. You, you have 11 starters, but you need 23 people to, to feel valued and important. And we had certain strategies in, in which to do that. Um, you know, one of the most base level things when we would put up the starting lineup for the game, we would then put the starting 11 and then instead of putting up the substitutes or the bench warmers, we actually said, these are our game changers. And we did this, you know, five, five years ago. Yeah. And it, it immediately sent a message that my role coming in off the bench is to impact the game. I'm not just filling in or I'm not just, you know, I'm actually strategically there for a reason. And it also sends a message to your starters that it takes 23 players to, to get this uh, result. And you're obviously saying this with the benefit of hindsight. How much of this was your plan going in and how much, how you operated at the, at the, at the end of your yeah. time in the national team versus the start? I certainly think just in, you know, I think all overall in my coaching persona, I've, you know, I've evolved. I think when I was young, I was very uh, independent and demanding. It was probably how I characterized myself. And then gradually over time, you realize that, you know, you've got incredible people around you, especially your staff. I mean, when I was young, I probably didn't maximize and yeah. utilize my staff. But over time, yeah, you certainly recognize the value. But I think with, with the women's team, I had the beauty of having been an assistant for two Olympics. So when you're in that environment and you see, when you're working with elites, what they ultimately want is a challenge. So that means you want to do a drill that has familiarity. So they're learning the elements within that drill or the principles, but you also want to slightly tweak it. So there's a different wrinkle. There's a challenge in something. The very first time I met the team, very first meeting, I put up the quote, you know, even if you're on the right track, if you sit there, you'll get run over. Yeah. I could have gone into that meeting and be like, oh, you guys are awesome. You're fantastic. But I truly felt like connecting them, establishing credibility on a professional level was important. So I kind of threw down a challenge. I said, where we are today is not good enough to win next year. And when you know your audience and you know that that's kind of kind of evoke a response from them. I mean, my first meeting with Alex Morgan, how are you going to help me get better? You know, that was kind of her, her question. So I think it's, it's truly about knowing your audience, knowing the people around you. But I did definitely over time 
evolve in, in, uh, you know, in how I promoted or attacked the challenge of coaching such high level group. And that's, that's a really interesting comment. You know, how are you going to help me get better? Is that something that most of the athletes you work with say? Is it everyone? Is it, do, do all, in your, in your experience, all sort of elite sports people have this common, how are you going to make, help me get better, make me better? Or, or is it not all of them say that? Some of them actually um, are less secure. Because it takes a strong person to say that. I yeah, I mean, no, I would say my, my take on it has been, first of all, they understand that it's, it's helpful if they're going to continue to evolve because they know there's young players coming behind that are incredibly talented. So that I think that is what I've seen as a very common uh, thread in, in the women that I've worked with is whether they articulate it, I think they truly know that they have to continue to grow and evolve. And that's what I've, you know, I've, I've spoken to, to guys who are Navy SEALs. Like when you work with elites, they're always looking, you know, my friend said to me, well, I was looking for the next ridge line, the next mountain to climb, the next, you know, uh, technique to master. They're always trying to achieve more. So I think that's not something that, I, you know, and I think, again, the reality is if, if a player comes into that environment and thinks I'm good enough and I'm done learning, there's going to be someone chasing them down. That's just the reality of, you know, of sport. Yeah. And, and when you look back at some of the toughest decisions you made, I think often when you, when you read or hear leaders say, when faced with a tough decision, once they made it, they almost always feel they wish they'd made it sooner. Did you feel that with some of your decisions when, when it came to leaving people out? Or, or um, we were talking earlier before we started, that 2017, you said, actually, let's, let's, let's rip it up and start again. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of my decisions, I just always felt that when the decision was there, it was the right time to make the decision, if that makes sense. So, you know, in, you don't want to make a decision too early. So if you have a, if you have a, a, a veteran player that potentially is, their role is going to change from being a starter to a non-starter. If you make that decision too early, potentially you pick up an injury in, in your starting group and now that player's role has to shift. So timing of decisions, I think is, is important. Coming out of the Rio Olympics, what essentially, you know, it was our lowest finish ever in a major world event. And I think you're all in failure, you get feedback. And the instant feedback was like, we've got to be better. Yeah. And then it was, you know, in that moment, I literally, after the Olympics, flew to New York to, to meet with my bosses. And I said to them, we need a reboot. Yeah. We need to kind of shake things up. And so I think, you know, when you make decisions, you're constantly getting this flow of information and feedback with which to arm yourself to make, I think, an educated decision. Um, you know, when it's, when I make those decisions with players, I think I approach all decisions with a, with a truthfulness and empathy. You know, I, I never, I never candy coat things. I never delay things because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. If there's a delay in a decision, it's because it's the right decision to delay it. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think the most respectful way you can treat people is with honesty and, and telling them straightforward. So I think that was that was something I've made, you know, you make hard decisions, you leave people off of rosters. I, I at one point had to fire one of my close friends, not because he did anything wrong, but because the team needed something different. And I made the decision which was best for the team. I think when you're a leader, if you can kind of shy away from making it about person, people or independent, or it has to be about the collective, then there's a certain, I say relief, but there's definitely a certain sense of I'm, I'm making the right decision for the whole. And did you have 
key people around you use in the decision making process or did you go for a run on in the, in the woods <laughs> on your own Is that, how did you get yeah, to that no, no, it's a brilliant question no as I said when I got older I definitely uh, I think when I was younger yeah I was kind of like this, this is my decision but yeah. as again I matured and you realize there's so much talent when you're when you're working with uh, elite coaches and support staff I mean I'm not a sports scientist but I work with the, probably the best sports scientists in, in the world in the women's game and I'm going to listen to her input you know when she says hey listen we should customize this training for this player on a specific day I'm going to listen but when it came down to big decisions roster decisions you know who we start those kind of things certainly I would take the input from my my coaches and I think when you're a leader you sometimes have to almost endorse or encourage people to be honest because sometimes your your subordinates kind of like I don't want to give them my opinion because yeah. it might be wrong and I always say listen nothing is off the table give me your craziest thought and idea and then I would always say okay thanks and then I would generally I'd go away back to my hotel room and, and sort of either sleep on it or think about it and I think when you make decisions you know someone once said this to me you have to make a decision that you're comfortable with it failing because then you truly understand you're owning it yeah. Because if it goes wrong, are you comfortable owning it? Or if you suddenly listen to somebody else and you made the decision based on just what they thought and it goes wrong, are you going to blame them? Ultimately, you have to be comfortable with owning that decision, and uh, especially if it's the wrong one. I will say it's an easy thing to say. I'm happy to make decisions and then own the failure. But it's very hard when, when failure hits you. It's a very hard oh, thing. Absolutely. to and, 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 you know, we talked about you ripping up starting again 2017 a, a reset you've got some i don't know if criticism's too strong a word you certainly got oh, some absolutely you've got some <laughs> real you've got some real-time feedback yes no question from your players yes. you know not just your players but and yeah. that's it's easy to say with hindsight and it's easy to say the head of the event but when you're in it that doesn't feel good no i mean it's you know i think the and again i think if you always have your compass being I'm doing what's best for the team. I say it alleviates the, the personal feeling, but you can then look at the bigger picture. But for sure, I mean, when I, you know, I think when you make a, when you're going to make a big decision, sometimes you have to either get ahead of it or you have to involve the shareholders in the outcome from that decision. So when I told my bosses, listen, I want to increase the depth of the roster. That means I'm going to leave players off. That means I'm going to have, you know, we might have some tough results because I really wanted to play these young players in tough situations. A lot of coaches will bring in a young player and they'll play them 10 minutes at the end of the game. Yeah. Well, you don't learn anything about them. So in that period, because in 2017, we weren't preparing, we weren't close to a major world event. So I looked at that period as a development period. So I tried new players. I tried different systems. We played a back three. I experimented in that period. And when you do that and you can save the media, this is what I'm going to do. I stood in front of my players and I said, guys, this is my priority. How does that impact you? Some of you might be left off a of roster. Some of you might be not on this journey. Some of you might get your, because I always had to do salaries. Some of your salaries might be lowered because I had to tier the contracts. But, and that's why I said to him, at the end of the day, being on this team shouldn't be any other way. Well, you can say all that, but yeah. to your point, then when you drop a couple of games or, you know, a player's income is affected, then you have to be prepared to deal and live with the fallout from that. And that is, you know, it is hard because as much as you've, you know, you've said, this is what's going to happen. Here's it going to kind of comes. Ultimately, um, people resort to kind of what protects them. And so, yeah, several of the older players in there that were impacted by, you know, losing games, uh, it's financial impact, it's um, branding impact, being left off of rosters. And generally when people 
have an issue with with leadership, it's always going to be three things. This is what I, I don't know, maybe I should write a book on this, but I always feel it comes down to three things. It comes down to communication or lack thereof. That's mm-hmm. what they'll go to. It comes down to strategy and it comes down to culture. I think when you're, when you're in it, you know, I mean, I think one of the complaints levied against me was I didn't ride the bus to, to training with my team. I, I wasn't connected to them. And, you know, the reality is I go out early so I can set up, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's always going to be these things levied against you. And what I did at that moment, as tough as it was, I just said, you know what, this, this doesn't seem right. I'm going to, and that's when you dig into the competitor in you and you push back. And I, I did. I mean, I, I fought to keep my job because I felt I was the right person with the right plan. And even though I had prophesied this happening, everybody had to kind of either stay with it or not. And I remember in one press conference, you know, a guy from the media said, Hey, Jill, are you, uh, are you worried about losing your job? And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not coaching to keep my job. I'm coaching in what I believe. Yeah. I think that's ultimately what you have to have. And listen, when I got into coaching, I like literally the day I got into coaching, my dad said to me, he was a coach and he said, Jill, never been a coach until you've been fired. Hmm. And I was like, God, oh, that's a bit harsh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but what he was trying to say to me is it's part of our domain in coaching. We know wins and losses are a big part of what we do, but always coaching what you believe, not because you're trying to adjust or figure something out to keep your job. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can tell that you're, and I, in fact, I know from doing the research on you, you're, you're you're interested in sports very generally. Yes. So can you talk a bit about, I guess, within soccer, the managers, coaches you really admire? And then maybe we could go a bit broader. We're both, as I said, at, at the top of the show, we're both Manchester United fans. Yeah. And so Alex Ferguson. Yeah, legend. <laughs> a legend, one of the best yeah. soccer coaches ever. We had great days under him. We were spoiled. He must be one of your, one of your heroes. But Yes. I mean, if you, if you met him, certainly talk, talk a bit about him, but also just who else in the soccer world. And then, then let's go broader. Yeah, I mean, I have. I have I've had the opportunity to meet him. And um, yeah, I mean, I was a Man- Manchester United fan since I was seven. So, um, you know, all those players. But... But actually what I, when, you know, when I read, read about him and, and learned about him, and actually when I was going through this in 2017, when I decided to blow it up is what I saw in this guy. And I think what he recognized is having a fluid environment, meaning it's never static. There's, there's change and that's a good thing. I mean, you want consistency. It's a balance, right? You want consistency, but you also don't want something to become stale is he made a lot of his massive change decisions at the height of a successful season or a successful run. And there's something to be said in that. You know, I think that, you know, he, he recognized that, you know, I think when you're, when you're at that pinnacle, it's probably is the time to kind of change things. I mean, it, you know, in, when you're a college coach, you constantly have yeah. a dynamic environment that seniors are leaving, freshmen are coming in. So your team is always changing. doesn't mean you're maybe changing your principles, but the dynamics within your team is always different. You know, other coaches that I've, I've been fortunate, we went and trained actually before we went to the World Cup at Tottenham. And so I met uh, Mauricio Potticino. Yeah. And just what I liked, you know, about this guy was I like the way he conducts himself. I like the way he approached his job, showed great loyalty. Obviously, you know, tactical acumen, phenomenal player management, you know, but just I always liked his demeanor and how he conducts himself. But, you know, to be honest, yes, I have looked at outside of soccer in terms of looking for people to learn from and grow from. I think, you know, I think, listen, the day you stop learning, the day you're over, it's just, you know, you've got to continue to evolve just like you do your players. And so what about outside of soccer? Are there any 
coaches that stand out for you, I guess, in any of the great American sports, so baseball, football, hockey, basketball? Certainly. I mean, actually, when I first took over at the, my first head coaching job was at the University of Illinois, and there was a basketball coach there named Long Kruger, who also coached in the NBA. And, you know, actually, when I went to Illinois, one of the first things I did is I actually went to every single different sport and watched their training. Because you can always learn something about your own sport from watching others. And I went and watched Lon. First of all, I, in the, even in the office environment, this was a guy that knew the janitor's names. He knew the secretary's names. He knew every coach. This was a guy that I just realized that he, he acknowledged and recognized that everybody around you has a, a part to play in a team's success. You know, if everybody is maximizing, whether it's the, the you know, the, the trainer or whether it's the academic counselor, if everybody's bought in to what you're trying to achieve and you make people feel valued, I think that can help, you know, in terms of all the people around a team. I mean, I had a staff of 32 with the women's team. So I think that that was something I took away from him. But when I went and watched these other coaches work, what I, when I watched Lon, when you go and watch a basketball training, everything is done on a, on a clock, right? There's always a clock on the in the training. And it just made me realize just how much dead space there was at training, at soccer trainings. You know, people are like, okay, go get a drink. And then the coach is going to set up and the players are standing around. And what I decided was I want my environment to be so fluid. I'm, I don't need a two hour training session if I can do it in 70 minutes and have it be efficient and intense. So it was a matter of having just the efficiency of a practice run by watching Lon work. You know, I was very blessed that I was at UCLA when Coach Wooden was there. He obviously was long since retired, but, you know, several times I had conversations with him. I actually had him do a Q&A with my team one time. But my second year at UCLA was my, we went from kind of being a, a mid-range team to being a team we went to the national championship. So my third year in coaching was actually probably the hardest because you suddenly go from being off the radar to suddenly now there's a target on your back, everybody's gunning you, and it's it's different. It feels different. Yeah. And I remember saying to coach, I said, Coach, you know, how did you how did you manage pressure? And he kind of said something, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially said, It is a privilege because it means you've done something that's got people's attention, meaning now there's an expectation on you. And that's a good thing and you should embrace that. And so it really was, you know, a good, a good lesson to know that, you know, I mean, coach the women's national team, it's a pressure cooker. A silver medal is not good enough. You yeah. lose a game and it's the end of the world, yeah. right? Because the expectations are so high. But I felt it was, it helped, helped me be ready for that environment by, you know, I used to say to myself, everything I've experienced to this point has prepared me for this moment. Yeah. And that was kind of uh, just, you know, trusting yourself. And so here, here's a, a question that an English person or a European person would ask, which is, what's the future for so- soccer in the US? Why isn't soccer bigger than it already is? Now, it is, it, it's big and it's yeah. definitely big on, on the women's side, but the country pro- probably overall doesn't punch its weight. And, and yeah, it doesn't. And, you know, and I think if you had, I mean, the beauty of what Europe has is it is the sport in every country. Yeah. So that means it's the sport maximizing the television time. It's the sport that people are going to go watch and be a fan base to. Whereas here, we're kind of sharing that stage and we're kind of almost pushing ourselves onto that platform. And certainly, I mean, you know, Atlanta United has 70,000 people every home game. So we are, there's definitely waves being made and you're building a fan base. But when, you know, when Sundays are owned by NFL and the NBA plays 150 games a year, all of which are televised, you're trying to break into a market that is in essence saturated. But I do think that, you know, as 
time has gone by. Our sport, the profile of it has grown. The participation certainly is there. And Americans are falling in love with our game. I mean, we've now, we've just added three more teams to our MLS. Our Women's Professional League is now the longest we've ever had it. I think it's in it going into its sixth year, I believe. So it's definitely here to stay. And I think over time, when you, yeah, sponsorship, right? I mean, it's viewership and sponsorship. And with that comes investment. I think over time, um, it will continue to to grow and um, you know, potentially push aside some of those sports, not to not to slag other sports, but push aside some of those sports that maybe are a little less intense and exciting. I mean, most people watch baseball during the playoffs. Otherwise, you know, it's probably not a sport I even kind of glance at. Well, for what it's worth, I think you should definitely write the book. <laughs> thank you. You really should. And I, I just want to say thank you very much for, for joining us, for coming on. It was a, a pleasure, a treat, and I really enjoyed it. Thank My you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.